The following audio was recorded at Stone Oak Bible Church. For more information about our church or for more resources, visit us at stoneoakbible.com. I'd like to ask you a question. Do you know what praise is? We just heard a lot of praise in those songs, but do you know what praise is? That's okay, I'll help, I'll help you out. <laughs> praise, praise is uh, when you tell somebody like your parents or a friend that you're thankful for the good things they do. Or when you tell them they are great, doing something great. Let me get this attached. I think one of the best friends you'll ever have maybe is Jesus. Not maybe, it will be Jesus. That's because he's always there for you your whole life, no matter what. But on top of that, kids, he's done some really awesome things for you. Like he's created this whole earth. He's created the stars, the planets. Have you ever thought, have you ever thought about telling him uh, how awesome he is? Well, that's praise when you do that. And Jesus loves to hear our praise for things, the great things he's done. And he especially likes to hear it from the younger ones, especially you kids. He just loves that. Today I'm going to talk to the older people, though, after I'm done with you, and t- tell them about praise, why praise is so important. But I want, to know, I want you to know that it's important for you also to praise the Lord. There are a lot of ways we can praise Jesus. And kids, when you're at home, you're saying your daily prayers, you can just tell Jesus how great he is, or thank him for an awesome, your awesome parents, or a teacher you really like. You can tell him how much you like your teacher. He loves hearing that from you. He loves hearing you're thankful. And uh, he, loves, he just loves hearing, that, hearing you talk to him. Another way to praise the Lord is in music and singing. So when you are in Sunday school or even in a big church like today, I'd ask you to really sing out loudly. God can hear you. Even way up in heaven, he can hear you. And he, he loves that singing. He loves that praise. You kids can also, another way, help us uh, older people out and praise for Jesus too. I know you can do this. I have a picture here. I saw a lot of you... Uh, in service last week. And, uh, do you have that slide? That's not us. It's you leading us in praise. Look at those hands up praising the Lord. That was you in the front up there leading us. And I'm just so thankful that you did that. Uh, You can see us praising God. That that was really some praise on Sunday morning going going on in our sanctuary. I'd say good work, kids. And thank you, Children's Ministry volunteers, uh, for teaching our kids so well. That's really evidence of that. Keep up the good work with everyone. Well, that's my brief kids portion today. I hope that was helpful for you. Uh, we wanted to make sure that we focus on you a little bit more now when we have you in service. And I think it's a good thing that we pay more attention. Thank you, kids, for listening so well. So it's time to turn to the big people's message today. So okay, big people. Let's open our Bibles this morning to Psalm 117. There should be one close by, your t- one close by you if you have not brought it. And uh, if you can find that, open it up and we'll look, at, we'll look at Psalm 117. If you don't own a Bible, I would love to encourage you to take one of the blue or black Bibles that are on chairs near you. It would be our privilege, really, really a big privilege, to make you a gift of that Bible today if you don't have one. Psalm 117 is pretty easy to find in the Bible. If you just open up the Bible to the dead center... It's in the exact center of the Bible from a, from a chapter standpoint. A tidbit of a trivia. The, the Bible contains 1,189 chapters. Psalm 117 is the 595th chapter. So literally, it is 594 from the beginning and 594 from the end. 
It's an uh, interesting tidbit of fact that you can impress your friends with. If you're really into trivia, there's another great Bible fact that you can impress your friends with also. I think you can figure that one out once you see the passage. Has everybody found it? If you're using a traditional Bible, it can sometimes be difficult to find. If you have found it, I'm sure you've noticed something unusual about it. You can see why it's so easily to be uh, missed. This chapter is only two verses long, as you saw when Ryan read it. It's only 27 words, a scant 27 words total. By now, I'm sure you've guessed it. This is the shortest, shortest chapter in the Bible at 27 words. I know Justin did chapter, uh, song uh, 131 last, last week, I think it was. That was three, three verses. I'm guessing right now you may be thinking, great, this is going to be a short sermon. <laughs> Two verses. <laughs> I might be thinking that. <laughs> Shouldn't the sermon link be directly correlated to the length of the chapter? Maybe. In your mind, you might even be starting to plan out to get, get that early start on enjoying what is left for the Independence Day weekend. Well, I don't want to dash your hopes, but in my studies over the past couple weeks, uh, I discovered that it took Martin Luther 36 pages to cover these two verses. That's literally 18 pages per verse. I hate to tell you, I'm a pretty, pretty competitive guy. <laughs> so, are you comfortable? <laughs> I'm just kidding. You, know, you, you, can, you can relax. I'm planning on presenting a long, I'm not, presenting, not planning on presenting a long Lutheresque sermon this morning. But after studying this passage, I do think Charles Spurgeon had it right when he said, quote, This psalm, which is very little in letter, is exceedingly large in spirit. By bursting all bounds of race or nationality, it calls on all mankind to praise the name of the Lord. And we really saw a good example with, with the praise team this morning with praising the Lord. Those are some great praise songs. Before we get too far along, though, let's pray, for the, pray to the Lord for, for him to lead us in opening up this important passage to our hearts. So let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, this morning we reverently open your word so that we can learn from it and become better servants of you, Lord. I pray that the words that are spoken this morning are your words, and they are faithfully represent the truth that you want to give to your people today. I ask that you give me the words that will be clear and understandable, and most of all, true. May your word encourage all of us at Stonehenge Bible Church to step out with you to spread your gospel, your truth, to the people of your, our local community, to the city of San Antonio, to our nation, into the utter outmost parts of the world. I pray also that my message may touch the hearts of anyone here that may not yet know you personally. I ask that they will seek your great love and that they will seek a relationship with you, Lord, the one and only true living God. May this message edify your church, glorify you, Lord, and ultimately build your kingdom. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So let's dig into Psalm 117. I think Ryan showed, read the verse, but I'm going to read it again and start from there. Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol him, all peoples. For great is his steadfast love toward us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. There's a lot, there's a lot of excitement, a lot of praise going on in this, this verse, isn't there? That's fitting because this Psalm 117 is part of a series of six psalms that start with Psalm 113 and 118. Uh, they're known as the Egyptian Halal or the Egyptian Hallelujah. 
The Egyptian Halal was typically sung at Passover, the time set aside every year for the Israelites to, Israelites to uh, celebrate the exodus from Egypt. It's very likely that this very hymn was sung by Jesus and his disciples in the upper room as described in Mark 14, 26 and Matthew 26, 30. Take that in. This could have been what Jesus was singing since it was routinely sang at Passover. These words were probably on Jesus' mind the very night of his betrayal and arrest. Even though the psalm is short, it still has three distinct sections, though. First, there is a call to all nations and people to praise the Lord. The second answers the why behind the call to praise. And the third section is a reiteration of the command to praise. If we are to fully understand the intent of the psalmist, we first need to understand who he's addressing. So let's take a look at verse 1 and see if we can do that. Instead of a call to Israel, as typical in most psalms, alone, Israel alone to praise the Lord, the psalmist calls all nations and peoples to, of the earth to praise the Lord. The term nations in the Bible generally means non-Israelites, so he's referring here to Gentiles, or in other words, us. The word peoples is a similar in nature, but ignores the concept of political and geographic boundaries. So when the Bible uses the term peoples, it is not concerned about geography as, as, uni as a unifying, unifying factor, but the culture which likely crosses any physical national boundaries. Although we do not know exactly when the psalm was written or by who it was written, the psalmist likely would have been referring to people like the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, a lot of ites, and other such people and tribes we see mentioned in the Old Testament. This song was sung annually, as I said earlier, at Passover, and this likely had a special significance because even Egypt and worshipers of any other so-called gods were called here to worship the true and living God, not their gods. Previous psalms had called on God's covenant people to give praise to Yahweh, but here in Psalm 117, the word all peoples and all nations are called to praise him. I think this showed the largeness of the heart of God, that God had from, from eternity past, from the very beginning, prior to the creation. God has always intended all peoples to have the opportunity to be called his, and God intended his people to understand that from the beginning. In fact, in the very covenant God made with Abraham, there was a promise that in Abraham, all peoples of the world were to be blessed. This seems very much like a prophetic statement that points directly to Jesus. In Genesis 12, 2 and 3, where that covenant is made, God tells Abraham, And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who have blessed you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That last paragraph is what the psalmist is looking at. In you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In contrast to what some people believe, even during the Old Testament times, God's plan and love was apparent for all people. It's consistent with God's never-changing nature. And Spurgeon believed this also, and he, and he has a great quote here, that Psalm, he doesn't say which Psalm, but it's 117, was an invitation to Israel that the grace and mercy of their God were not to be confined to one nation, but would in happier days be extended to all races of man. All races of man. The psalmist seems to make clear that God's love for Gentiles did not begin after Israel rejected the Messiah, but that all people have always been in God's eternal plan. And Paul also confirms this in his universal call to all people in his defense of spreading the gospel to uh, the Gentiles in Romans 8-11. to And I want to read that also because it really shows how Paul, this is, this is the basis of Paul's ministry to the Gentiles. 
For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promise given to the patriarchs. And in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with this people. And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let the peoples extol him. You can see in that very last verse, verse 11, that is basically verbatim of, uh, of uh, Psalm 117, where, where all peoples are called. Since all nations and people groups are commanded to praise the Lord, and since that obviously includes us, we need, it, we need, another, we need another, answer another important question. What exactly is praise? I did a real brief explanation to the kids this morning, but we, we, it's, it's a little more complicated than that. We read frequently and hear the word praise, praise the Lord, but what does it really mean to do that? Where do we, where do we, go, where do we look to answer a question like that? Well, today's generation, we look, everybody looks to Google, don't they? <laughs> I mean, or, or for me, I'm a little bit older than most of you, so when I went to, what I did is I went to the bookshelf and dusted off my Webster's Dictionary. Kids, you probably know what one of those is. But anyway, I looked at Webster's and it defines praise as one, to express a favorable judgment of or to commend, or two, which is really the definition we're looking for, to glorify a God or a deity, especially by the attribution of perfections. The Hebrew words, the Hebrew words translated as praise in today's passage are verbs. So that means an action is required. In other words, we cannot passively praise our Lord. We just can't sit here and it happens. Praise requires a personal, personal commitment and action on each of our parts. The action is to express our love for God himself, as well as acknowledgement and appreciation for God's gifts to us. We can praise God for many things, but for such things as his amazing love, his grace, his mercy, his perfect nature, and the perfection in all he does. Praising the Lord can also be an affirmation of such things as God's goodness, his trustworthiness, his all-knowing, all-powerful, and all-seeing perfection, his righteousness, sovereignty, attributes that only the true and living God possess. So we've seen the definition, so now let's look to the Bible to see what God says about praise. Probably I'm doing this backwards. We should look to the Bible usually first, but God's word is always the best place to look, to observe, and to gain understanding of God's desires, especially when he calls or commands us to take action. When you're called to take action, you better be sure you're doing the right thing. So as we seek God's heart in the Holy Spirit and look to the Bible, he brings us back to the source of truth. It helps us to be careful not to get too caught up in the traditions or today's culture, views, or practices. With all respect to uh, Webster, the biblical meaning of praise and its, and its biblical meaning of praise, it's a little bit more complicated than that simple dictionary definition. You'll find there are at least seven different Hebrew words that are translated as praise in, into English in, in the Old Testament. And each form depicts a different type of, or expression of praise. Let's take a quick look at these. Uh, here in Psalm 117, there's two different Hebrew words for praise that are used. So the chapter would read, if you were using Hebrew for the praise, the word praise would read, Halal, the Lord, all nations. It, it, shabak, him. Shavak, him, all peoples. So Shavak and Halal are the words for praise. For great is his steadfast love to us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Halal, the Lord, so another praise. So we need to know what the meaning of that is. The meaning of the word halal is to be clear or to shine or to boast, to make a show. It may even be an appearance of foolishness. 
uh, but it's very outward looking. The word translated extol is the Hebrew word shavak. Shavak is a type of praise that is done in a loud, or, loud way or loud manner or loud, loud tone or shout. It's an adoration that is proclaimed in a loud, unashamed voice. So in verse 2, the, the last praise the Lord brings us back to allow. And both these forms are praise are very visible, very obvious, and very outgoing. They are enthusiastic celebrations meant to be heard by others. They aren't quiet in nature. There are five other Hebrew words in the Old Testament that are commonly translated into praise also. A couple of them are music-related. One means uh, to just sing spontaneously, to praise the Lord. And another is an, involves playing instruments, such as we did today, with or without song, but in a more organized fashion. So those two words are musical in nature. And then there's a, a word that expresses agreement with God and thanks for praise for what has been done or been done by the Lord in giving sacrifices. So it's talking to the Lord, thanking him for what he's done. And finally, there are two words of praise that display a more personal expression. One means to kneel, to praise and kneel, and others to praise when you're bowed, to give reverence to God as an act of adoration. These are very personal in nature. Some of them are done with hands extended. Like when you're out in the sanctuary singing, extending your hands, it's a type of praise. And extend your hands towards heaven with a meaning of, usually it means absolute surrender of yourself to the Lord. So as you can see, these terms are not generally interchangeable. There are differences in meaning that have to do with there are, there are differences in meaning that have to do with the method or form in which praise is conveyed, but the actions are dependent on the heart, attitude of love, service, and surrender towards God. Now I want to focus on back to Halal and Shabak, the two forms of praise in 117. As it appears, these are intentional, that the psalmist chose these particular words to ensure we knew that in these verses that the praise was to be manifested in an outward manner in a boisterous de demonstration of the admiration of God. The command to do this kind of praise might even be a call to share the good news and personal experience of God's goodness with anyone who is near, in likely a manner that would not be missed. This takes us more, more deeply into what may be one of the applications of this passage today. Many, many, many people, many scholars, including Charles Spurgeon, contend that, the type, that because of the outward focus of this the types of praise combined with the all, call to all nations, that Psalm 117 is a kind of Old Testament version of the Great Commission, which calls us to make disciples of nations. The proponents of this missional interpretation view the outward focused praise for, for the Lord as an effective way to reach unbelieving world, the unbelieving world, especially when praise is made by members of their own people groups. So let me, that was a lot, that was a lot, to, to cover in a short period of time. But let me quickly summarize the takeaways from these first nine words of, of the passage. The first and most obvious takeaway is the psalm is, is clearly an unequivocal call to praise. This is a universal call, though, for all mankind to praise the Lord. I think it's clear that if all mankind is to praise the Lord, then this call applies to us, and clearly we should be doing it. The second takeaway is this. I propose to you that this call of praise was not the typical praise that happens during a typical temple or church service or when we have our quiet time at home in the morning or when we're praying at night to close out the day. No, the psalmist here calls us to project the project our praise outward so that it can be heard and seen clearly by others and even others who do not know the Lord. 
This outward focused praise leads some students of the Bible to conclude there is likely a missional, as I said earlier, a missional aspect to the praise in this psalm. I cannot say for certain if that is the proper interpretation, though, of the text. But the next, the next section does sound very much, and we, we'll get into it, does sound very much like the door opening for a gospel message. So this is a good, a good segue into the, next, next, the second and last verse of 117. Verse 2 is, very, is a very powerful message and contains the psalmist's answer to the question, why should we boldly extol God's virtues? The answer is pretty simple. Our God is worthy of our praise and our undivided love because of his steadfast love towards us and his eternal faithfulness. Let me remind you again of text two, to the text in verse 2. It states, For great is his steadfast love toward us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. This, should, this verse really should give us, give us all true believers an unimaginable comfort and great hope that no matter what happens in our lives, God's sovereign plan is good. If the Lord loves us and he's faithful to us, what else can, what else can, it be? What else can we, we see but goodness out of this? God loves us and will always love us from right now and lasting throughout eternity, forever. Take a few seconds to think about that. And then think about what Paul states in Romans 8, 28. He says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, and those who are called according to his purpose. How great is it to know that even in our greatest trials, they are there because we ultimately, they were there to ultimately work for our good and to be for the glory of God. This is a little more difficult. Believers, though, should not be naive. Non-believers and some believers alike wonder why our God would demand praise even when they are saddled with pain, suffering, and troubles piled on them so high that there seems to be no room for hope. They ask a question, what kind of egotistic God demands praise from people even when they're in, this, in these dire circumstances? It's a good question. What these skeptics I contend do not understand is that they are not the center of the universe. Everything is not for them. They need to understand that God has allowed what seem to be roadblocks in their life in order to further his kingdom. They are not simply or intentionally made to make their lives more difficult. In reality, God is the center of the universe. And just maybe this suffering is necessary for our overall good or overall good of his people. Romans 5, 3-5 gives us another perspective on this about suffering, even though God loves us. Romans 3-5 Romans 3 through 5 states, Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The hope that we're talking here is the gospel hope, and knowing that the Lord is forever faithful in keeping his promises should bring us great encouragement and comfort. I think this is one reason James says in, in James, I believe it's James 1, to count all trials as joy. Let's turn now to, to the word to take a quick look at the evidences of steadfast love and enduring faithfulness, because this is what the psalmist is telling us is there. In many of the following examples, man's tendency is to step in and do something because he's impatient with God's will and timing. Self-reliance and pride kicks in, and guess what? We got trials. To this day, those biblical trials send a message to all the people who believe in God of the Bible. 
Sorry about that. So all you have to do is look at what happened to Abraham and Sarah when they tried to take, take everything into their own hands and what, what we ended up with there. God's love and faithfulness to mankind is found right up front in the Bible, though. God not only breathed life into man, but he provided everything Adam and Eve would ever need in the garden. God's steadfast love for man was on display in the garden also. Our creator proclaims his plan for salvation to the guilty pair, that is Adam and Eve, almost as soon as they were caught in their sin and and fell. Here, at this time, really was the beginning, the dawning of the gospel day, the gospel message. No sooner was the wound given and the remedy was promised and revealed in in Genesis 3.15, it states, And I will put enmity between you, speaking of Satan, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He... Jesus shall bruise your head, and you shall, bru- and you shall bruise his heel. Spurgeon eloquently summarizes this verse in the love of God exhibits for his creation, saying, that This is the first gospel sermon that was delivered upon the surface of this earth. It was a memorable discourse indeed, with Jehovah himself for the preacher, and the whole human race and the prince of darkness for the audience. Can you see this? God talking to the devil and talking to Adam and Eve. It must have been incredible. When it was on his face. <laughs> It must be worthy, it must be worthy, Sergio goes on to say, it must be worthy of our heartiest attention. Is, it is, not, is, it, is it not remarkable that the greatest gospel promise should have been delivered so soon after the transgression? And Spurgeon goes on to say, let us rejoice then in the swift mercy of God, which in, early, which in the early watches of the night of sin came with comfortable words to us. We have that same comfort. In the light of this dreadful sin, though, God exhibited his grace and mercy for mankind. But his love becomes even more agonizingly apparent for us when we realize that his plan of salvation required the perfect sacrifice of his perfect son, Jesus Christ. It was, it was our sin that was nailed, to, that nailed Christ to the cross. It's just, it's, it's, it's overwhelming. The history of God's faithfulness is evident as you read and study the journey of the seed also. It is a story of trials and struggles that only God's enduring faithfulness and love could ever have overcome. And John John sums it up really well in John 3.16. Obviously, that's famous. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Hallelujah to that. If that isn't enough to convince you of God's love and everlasting faithfulness, just just continue on to Ephesians 2. If we were to make a quick assessment of our lives right now, do you think any of us would be good enough to stand on our own merit to have a relationship with God? Would you want to stand without Christ behind you or Christ with you in front of God? Ephesians addresses addresses this, this, this dilemma straight up, no punches pulled. Let me read from Ephesians 2, 1 through 5. And you were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature of wrath like the rest of mankind. Then it goes on in verse 4 to say, But God, there it is, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. 
If you don't see God's faithful love there, it gets really difficult. I do not know about, about these. I don't know about you, but these verses hit me pretty, pretty, pretty hard. And I wanted to share a little bit of my testimony with you because I think you can see, some, see God's faithfulness there too. And for some of you, maybe you can relate to this. I accepted the Lord when I was 13 at summer church camp. Not so atypical for a teenager to be at camp and accept the Lord. I was really excited at that time, and uh, I, I, I believed that my life had been changed and that I would be with, with, with God forever, with Christ forever. But as life passed by, I grew further and further away from God until he was just a, uh, a glimmer of light on the, on the very distant horizon. He was a light, but even so, that light was still shining. God's love remained, remained steadfast for me, even though I didn't know it. I won't get into too much for the detail because I'm already running long, but... Uh, I don't want to break my promise of being too long. But God put a loving wife in my life that never stopped praying for me and reminded me of God's love. But still, that wasn't enough. After a period of ultimate pride and self-reliance for me and putting all my energy into climbing that proverbial corporate ladder, God put several trials in my life that brought me back into his fold. But God, in his great love, there's that but God again, God, in his great love, put trials in my path so that I would finally realize that I was chasing goals of power, riches, and lots of other things that would ultimately lead me, lead me in my soul to bankruptcy if I didn't change. God accomplished by using his faithful servants to shepherd me, his lost sheep back, in my, his lost sheep back into his fold, back into his flock. In a series of very unlikely events, I was invited to a Bible study that my pastor had in Ecclesiastes. And I was befriended by a couple who loved, who loved the Lord and literally adopted me like a son. And of course, Karen was beside me the entire time. It took me a while, but I soon came to realize how futile it was to, to live a life of self-reliance, selfishness, and pride. No matter how much I received from it, it was empty. The only thing certain and constant in my life then was Christ's love and faithfulness. To make a long story short, I quit my job because it was really, really focused around that, and I refocused my life on God and at long last returned to the following of the Lord. It was not instantaneous, though. God led me over a period of, period of years for, uh, and, and, to the nurturing, and, and brought me back to the nurturing of God's people. I say this because for you who are walking this path with a wandering loved one, it may take a long time. We cannot put our timeline on God's plan, but instead must trust in God's enduring faithfulness. I hope I'm bored with that, but I thought that I'm, a, I'm just a living example of, of, of Christ's faithfulness and his love and what can happen, even though you're really lost. With God's faithfulness, I, I stopped walking in my own power and walked under him. You have to understand that this took a long time. This was over a period, literally, I didn't say how long a long time was, but this was over 20 years. Can you believe that? I, I was walking slowly away and lost for 20 years. And God remained faithful to me that whole time. I don't advise anyone to take this path. It gets, it's really dark. But I hope it gives you comfort to know that if, if you've given your heart to him, God is with you. There are many, many more reasons to praise God, so I'd like to leave you with a few more thoughts as to why the psalmist makes the, uh, his bold proclamation to praise the Lord. 
First and foremost, as the psalmist states the evidence, states, and I, th- I believe the evidence proves God is worthy of our praise. I pray this morning that God's words have convinced you of his love truly is steadfast, and his faithfulness does endure forever. But in addition, here are a few other reasons you might consider why you should be regularly praising our God. F- first of all, the Bible commands it. Psalm 117. It's not, not, not just, it's nice to praise, praise the Lord, it says. Praise, praise the Lord. God's acceptance of you isn't based on your performance. Jesus took care of us on the cross. God has made you free from the tyranny of law. God knows all about you and loves you anyway. Think about that one. Look at your life and see what God's covering. God has commissioned you to participate in the greatest cause on earth, the Great Commission. God has filled us with the Spirit. Jesus just didn't leave us here on earth. He indwelled us with the Spirit. And finally, uh, or God has made peace and joy and hope available to us. And God listens to every prayer you pray. God, Jesus is our mediator to God. And when we pray, he listens. So how can, how can your life or mine not include regular praise with all these things that God's done for us? Let me, let me, I'm going to end this sermon, but I want to suggest before that, I want to suggest that a few of the many opportunities you have to regularly offer your praise to the Lord where you can look to uh, be praising God. First and probably the easiest is to regu- regularly attend church service. Right here today, this is an d- example of praising the Lord. The song, the services are designed specifically to praise the Lord. So sing out loudly and sing boldly and sing to your Lord. Follow the psalmist's lead and find places where you can unashamedly proclaim the word of God. The outward focusing of praise is what many think this psalm was about. There's ways we can we can, we can, we can, battling me. <laughs> There's many ways we can serve, like at Urban Faith Ministry. There are infinite amounts of opportunities down at Urban Faith to, sh- to proclaim the Lord and to share your faith with the people down there. We can volunteer in Houston with the Holmans. The same opportunities, the same types of opportunities are there. If you're not able to go into the mission field, there's an opportunity for you to financially support these missionaries. And I don't want to forget the blocks in Peru. We can, we can if, you, if you're adventuresome, there's another opportunity to go out into the field and to, uh, to praise the Lord and to do some missional work. Another way is to routinely use your prayer life to praise the Lord. This is the adoration part of the Acts synonym. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. And if you, have, if you do quiet time in the morning, it's another great time to, to praise the Lord. Take part of that quiet time to, to praise the Lord that he's, what he's done for you. And finally, it's not finally, there's many, many more, many more ways to praise the Lord, but you can become a member of our prayer team. Prayer has become one of Justin's goals for the, for the church this year to strengthen our prayer life. But you can become a regular member of that prayer team that meets on Tuesdays, and there's lots of praise that's going on there. I'm sure there are many, many more ways in which you can share your praise, though. But instead of searching to pra- how to praise the Lord, we really just need to do it. Let me leave you with one last thought from John Piper. The reason God seeks our praise is not because he won't be complete until he gets it, but rather he seeks it because we won't be happy until we give it. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. If you bow your heads with me. Heavenly Father, how majestic is your name in all the earth. 
even though we acknowledge you as the one and only true God, the perfecter of our salvation, still, Lord, too often we put you aside in our busy lives. We fail to acknowledge your steadfast love, your everlasting faithfulness, your goodness, your sovereignty, your grace, and your mercy. We want to confess these shortcomings and ask you for your forgiveness and guidance this morning. As your word calls us to do, we give you praise and worship your holy name. We pray that we will give you the glory and honor and praise that is due to you. For you are our God. You alone are our creator and Lord and our savior. And you alone deserve our praise and worship. Your power and majesty are seen throughout all the world. The works of your hand are displayed in the heavens above, in the earth beneath, in the waters below. We are your people, the sheep of your pastor. You are our God, and we worship you. We give great comfort in our times of need. You bless us with love, joy, and peace. You cleanse us of our sins and will wipe away our tears from our eyes when we join you in heaven. Finally, we want to praise you, Lord, for our creation, our preservation, and for all our blessings of this life. But above all, we worship and thank you for sending your Son to be our payment for our sins. You are our Savior who washed away our sins with our own blood. Words cannot express the wonder of your love and grace. We worship you forever and ever and ever. Praise be to the Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.